We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lumello, and I'm very happy to introduce my guest today. I think I can speak for myself and many others when I say that he is on the very short list of announcers who make up the soundtrack of my life. He probably has more memorable calls than any other announcer. He's covered pro and college football pro and college basketball, golf, figure skating, and volleyball in Leningrad. He won the Vin Scully Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014, and he was inducted into the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame in 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vern Lundquist. Vern, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Rich, thank you. You you failed to mention I covered archery. (laughs) I, I used that for a while when I was really in the in the beginning phases of my career i thought well let's be good for the resume archery i also did weightlifting at the same event uh, it was a national sports festival in in syracuse new york and i was at abc but uh, archery i soon re- learned it was really kind of irrelevant to <laughs> anybody considering hiring me so uh, i don't i don't talk much about archery or weightlifting anymore What's amazing, your your bio states um, that you you've covered twenty plus sports, yeah. and even even big time sports fans. You start to you start to get down to seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. It starts to it's tough to come up with sports at that point. <laughs> There's a guy named Chris Marlowe with whom I did volleyball in Leningrad in 1985. He was captain of the United States gold winning uh, gold medal winning uh, team in Los Angeles in '84, and Chris. Uh, is now he's transitioned from analyst to play-by-play and he does the Denver Nuggets. So uh, we live in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and uh, I'm exposed to his work all the time. He lists 24 different sports and I'm challenged. When I was lucky enough, and it was a tremendous honor uh, to win the Vin Scully Award some years ago, uh, Vin did not come back to New York for Fordham University for the event. But he did the intro from Dodger Stadium from the broad from the Vin Scully broadcast booth, 
And uh, when he when he threw it to me to receive the award, he said, your bio, and he held a fake piece of paper. And he said, your bio says you've done 20 sports. Name them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was it was what a thrill that was. And and uh, Bob Costas remains a good friend. And, and we've known each other for 20 years, I guess. Bob called me the next day and he was a previous winner of the same event. And uh, I was doing a commencement address at my alma mater the day after I'd received the Scully Award or two days after. And Bob called me and he said, I just want, I'm sorry I couldn't be there. My son was graduating from high school. Uh, but let me, let me ask you, didn't the hair stand up on your forearms when you heard Vin Scully introduce you? And I said, boy, did it ever. Because he, in my mind, he's the greatest ever in terms yeah. of play-by-play. Play. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can still hear the, uh, the call, the Kurt Gibson home run. In 1988, still in my uh, head. Rich, it's my all-time favorite. Yeah. With all due respect to Al Michaels, and let me, do you believe in miracles, which is a brilliant call. Uh, and I told Vin that. And I asked him, I, because I did get to know him before I was honored by receiving his award. Uh, and I, I, I just, I'm in awe of his ability. And he just turned 94. Uh, and... And I said, it's my favorite call. And Jack Buck at the same event uh, was doing radio. And when Gibson's home run went over the right field wall, Jack's reaction was, I don't believe what my eyes just saw. Same, same event. But, yeah. but Vin had a little poetry to it. Right. And, uh, and I said, what do you, how do you come up with something like that? And he looked at me and grinned and he said, I don't know. It was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That was, uh, if I recall, that day was the day. So obviously, you know, iconic home run hit by Kirk Gibson off Eckersley. Earlier that day was the Notre Dame Miami game. Uh, ah, yeah, eighty-eight. That's eighty-eight. Yes. And I remember oh, my buddies and I just looking at each other saying, that was a hell of a day. That was a crazy sports day. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, some uh, days stand out more than others. Uh, yes. Um, well, so Vince, so you are, you were born in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, but, but were only there for a short period of time. You moved out to the state of Washington. And then by the time you were eight or so, you were living in Austin, Texas. And that, that's right. where you went to high school. Um, and then you graduated Texas Lutheran University. Um, you actually, your, your dad was a Lutheran minister and you, you actually went to uh, seminary school for a year and then decided that that wasn't your calling. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that, you know, kind of experience. Well, um, I, I was kind of an unkept bed, unmade bed when I graduated. <laughs> I graduated in 62, a couple of years ago, with a uh, major in sociology and a minor in history and no real... Uh, Rick Riley wrote a great column for Sports Illustrated years ago about Shaquille O'Neal when he was with the Lakers. And he, de he, he declared the men who surrounded the entourage men of unclear purpose. And I thought that was, and, and I was a man of unclear purpose in 1962. <laughs> and I'd grown up in the parsonage, the minister's home, I was comfortable with the lifestyle, and I'm a, a spiritual person. 
not particularly a religious person, uh, but I, I do have a, a degree, a, a great degree of spirituality. So without any idea of what was in front of me, I committed to go to, to, to school. And Rich, within six weeks, I realized I did not have the commitment. Uh, it, it requires, A, an absolute belief system. Uh, and, and B, the commitment is just enormous. And I saw it to my, even after I got out of the, decided to leave the theological school. But I did say to myself, uh, I'm going to give this a year. I'm committed to a year. But it was six weeks and I knew. And simultaneously, uh, I got a job as a nighttime disc jockey uh, working at WOC uh, Radio TV in Davenport, Iowa, right across the Mississippi River. And uh, I really liked uh, that as a craft. But it, there was a paradox because I was playing music to make out by by midnight, nine to midnight every night. And then I'd go back across the river and take Old Testament uh, exegesis and, uh, and Greek. And the Greek has not been particularly uh, applicable to my career, except, except I uh, pronouncing unusual names. <laughs> and my wife and I watched a documentary last night on Netflix because I do have a, an appreciation for figure skating. We watched a Netflix, <clears throat> Netflix uh, special on the scandal at the 2002 Olympics uh, in Salt Lake City. And I grinned when I heard that. I mean, it was a very serious topic. But uh, the, the Russian pairs skaters who originally won the gold medal were Alexander Sigurelitsa and er Elena Berzhnaya. And I thought, well, my lessons in Greek will somehow apply to that. Right, right. But, 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 but uh, I, I knew I didn't have uh, what it took to, to, uh, to continue in theological school. So I did finish 18 hours. And uh, I landed, I applied for, and was given a summer job at KTBC. Texas Broadcasting Corporation, AM, FM, and TV in Austin, owned by uh, Lady Bird Johnson, but run by her husband <laughs> in absentia. My original summer job was an FM uh, replacement. Now we played soft rock and uh, easy, easy listening music. I guess is the definition, and. Uh, I would replace announcers as they went on vacation in two-week increments. And during that summer, uh, the sports job opened up. I, I grew up in Austin, essentially. And uh, I remember when the station went on the air for the first time, Thanksgiving Day, 1952. And uh, the sports director was a guy named Dan Love. And after 11 years there, uh, during the summer, that I was doing FM disc jockey, Dan accepted a job at uh, KPRC TV in, in Houston. Well, I had written uh, a column going all the way back to junior high school. I had written a sports column for a weekly at University Junior High in Austin. I had continued that column at Austin High School. 
and on Texas Lutheran. And so I had a background uh, in written journalism uh, and a very deep interest in sports. And so I thought somewhat audaciously, boy, that, that might be fun. So I approached the program director and asked for it and was given an audition. And uh, that really was the start of a television sports career. He, he said it wasn't bad. It, it had some hiccups. But, and so the, the idea was he put me on AM radio, took me off FM, and I had my own disc jockey show from five to nine on Radio 59, stacks of wax and mounds of sound, twixt now and nine, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, loopy doopy. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then he put me on the weekends on sports. And they hired another fellow who was much more experienced than I was. And uh, he didn't like them and they didn't particularly like him. And so after five months, uh, they let Joe, his name, Joe, doesn't matter. Uh, they let him go and offered me the job. So I went on the air full time for the first time on March 1st, 1964, just like yesterday. <laughs> and you, you were at the station uh, in November of 63 when oh. JFK was assassinated. And for a short period of time there, you were thinking, you know what, with everything that's going on in the world, maybe sports isn't my calling. Maybe I should be on the news side. Tell, tell me about your thinking there. Well, uh, I, w I was working the radio board. I, I did the disc jockey show. And this, of course, was everybody, uh, I think, well, those of us of certain age, young, young people probably don't know the date like those of us of an older generation do. November 22nd, 63. Uh, in addition to doing the disc jockey show, they asked us to do board work. So at noon on that day, uh, I was filling in the noon to one spot and then had the afternoon to get ready for my show. And uh, the news director, a guy named Hal, Hal Ward, walked in and they, by doing the board, you're running a control board and you're putting announcers off and on the air weatherman, radio newsman, et cetera. We were in the middle of an agricultural report. Uh, the farm commodities are up <laughs> and, and it was taped. And Hal walked in about 12, 15, 12, 20. And he said, the president's been shot, put me on the air immediately. And uh, uh, so Hal filled us in with what we knew at that time. And it wasn't much. And then when Walter Cronkite, we were CBS affiliate, and uh, Walter Cronkite came on the air, and uh, we joined CBS television. Uh, even radio went to CBS, the, the audio for CBS television. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I lived through that. Uh, all of us did. My, I, just a small aside, uh, my boss uh, had a daughter, uh, neither Louise Kellum, his name is J.C. Kellum, crusty old, crusty, gentle old man. <laughs> the B word almost slipped out of my mouth. I didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's okay. Just, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. But neither Louise, I was going to be her escort. We weren't dating at all, but 
the president was destined, President Kennedy was scheduled to speak in Austin that night. And Nita Louise was calling me to let me know that her dad had found somebody to fill in for me on the, my discharge show. And I was to be her escort to listen to President Kennedy that night. So there were emotional ties because I was going to get, I, I don't know that I would have gotten to meet him, probably because the vice president, uh, who was also there, was going to be there. Uh, anyway, that's, that's how I learned. And, and my thought process was <clears throat> I'd spent, by, by the time that happened and then subsequent to that, I'd spent three years in Austin. <clears throat> and I had this revelation that turned out to be inappropriate that I needed to do something serious with my life. And that uh, I was engaged in some frivolous pursuit that had no meaning to anybody. Uh, and I needed to get serious. So I accepted an offer to go to San Antonio. Uh, and I worked as a afternoon, early afternoon. I, I helped host early after the early evening report, it was called, a one-hour show. Then I anchored the 10, 6 o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. And I did that from October of 66 until, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, November 66, October 67. And I realized this was not for me. And we were, if it bleeds, it leads, Rich, one of those kinds of stations. Sure. And then we were third in the market. Our competition was an ABC uh, affiliate. And I can remember they would every day, they, they had a, a guy overnight news photographer. And if nothing had happened, he'd go out in the backyard and light a bunch of, of brushes and have a fire and do a close up. So there was a fire last night. And they'd manufacture, I mean, it was just awful. <clears throat> and we were trying to play copycat. We weren't much better. Uh, I, I was on the air the sixth day of the six-day war in Israel. Uh, Edmund Newman was anchoring for NBC. I was not doing the sixth that night. And I came in and I discovered that our brilliant news guys had not taped NBC. So we had no reporting on the six-day war on our 10 o'clock newscast. Come on. Yeah. And I just got, I thought, I got to get out of here. And so I was lucky. Uh, I applied for, and I had some help, some people who knew me in Dallas and with the Southwest Conference who called, made some calls. And on my third try, I'd auditioned for Channel 8 in Dallas two different, on two different occasions. And on the third try, uh, they said, well, we need you to come up here and cut a live audition. So I took... I could do it on the weekends, and they agreed with that. And I drove up to Dallas and uh, did the audition. And uh, they said, well, we're going to have meetings. Wait out here in the lobby. And here's the fate of my career in their hands. And I had to wait. And I was called in about 45 minutes later and said, well, we'll hire you. And uh, that was a huge break. Huge. So... And that was really the launching point for what it, everything that happened after that. Sure. And then shortly thereafter, in in 1967, if I if I remember correctly, you 
you become associated with the Dallas Cowboys. You, you start off doing pregame and postgame and halftime right. reports and sideline reports and ultimately work your way to the color man. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the Cowboys in a second, but then, it, and at one point you're thinking, okay, I'm enjoying this. I want to be national. I want to be you know, broadcasting games on a national basis. And Tech Schramm, kind of general manager, president of the team says, oh, you have an offer to go to LA mm-hmm. to kind of be the man at, at, at one of the uh, owned and operated stations out in LA. And he says, look, we're about to get very good for a very long period of time. You'll do well to stay here and be the play-by-play guy. And you took his advice and it seemed to work out pretty well. Yeah, that was a tough, it was a, uh, I, I learned then how this business can work. If, the, if somebody is successful and you're a competing station or a news director or a program director or a CEO, you contact somebody out of the market and advise them that this guy's really good, you ought to hire him and get him out of Dallas. <laughs> And that is what happened. Eddie Barker, who's a news director at the CBS affiliate, called KNXT in Los Angeles. And they had an opening for sports. And they said, why don't you take a look at this guy who's, I was 32 at the time. And I had done pre and post game and the color analysis for the Cowboys. Uh, And I loved doing it. And I flew out to Los Angeles and I did a live audition for them. Uh, uh, as again, as, as an aside, I did the, the first meeting with, with the news program directors at the Beverly Hills country club. Nice. And I looked over and in the corner of the, of the dining room, Groucho Marx and Jack Benny. Wow. And I thought I could get used to this, yeah. you know, this is kind of interesting. It's pretty nice. Yes. So I was given and accepted a five-year contract. Uh, and I still have that contract way back in the office. Hidden in a, a storage bin back here. Uh, I've got it somewhere. Uh, by today's standards, very, very modest money. But by that, in those days, pretty healthy. And... Uh, so I verbally accepted it. Flew back from Los Angeles, uh, old love field in Dallas, jumped off a plane from LA, went down the concourse, jumped on the cowboy charter to uh, New Orleans for the Miami New Dallas Super Bowl, Super Bowl six. And I told Tex Schramm, who's like a godfather to me, and I told Tex uh, about the offer and that I had verbally accepted it. And he said, have you signed anything? And I said, no, I've not. Uh, he said, don't sign anything until we get through this Super Bowl and we'll have lunch when we get back. And we did. We, uh, I got a couple of calls from Los Angeles. Uh, have you signed? Is it on the way? Uh, well, I've been, you know, I'm doing local reports here for the Cowboys Super Bowl. I'll uh, get it sent back to you. So I kept arm's length. And then Tex and I had had, uh, had lunch, four hours, with Al Ward, who was his number two guy with the Cowboys. And the three of us talked about the future. And he said, I'm prepared to offer you the play-by-play job. Background. Bill Mercer, who's still living, Bill is 95, 
and uh, lost his wife some years ago, but we communicate once a year at least. Bill was the play-by-play guy, and he had always dreamed of becoming a Major League Baseball announcer. Well, the Washington Senators were moving to Arlington to become the Texas Rangers. Bill asked for and was given the shot and auditioned and received the job. I didn't know any of this. And Tex said, Bill's moving on, the job is open. I'm prepared to give it to you. And I said, great, well, why don't I go out to LA and I'll come back and do the job with the Cowboys on the weekend. And he said, no, it doesn't work like that. He said, I want you on the air and subliminally, if you're doing the Dallas Cowboys, if you're doing Monday through Friday uh, with Channel 8, WFAA TV, and we were a dominant news station, holy cow. And, uh, and he said, we had more of a measured audience than the other two network affiliates combined. It was that, that dominant. So we had a wide profile. And he said, I want people to see you and, and think well, he's also the Dallas Cowboy guy. And so he hired me, and I understood that concept. And, he, and here's the key, Rich. He said, I, we're going to be pretty good. And if you can do this, and I obviously think you can, or I wouldn't offer you the job, you don't have to call the networks. They'll call you. And in that conversation, he also said, what do you want to be doing in 10 years? That's what led up to that comment. I said, I want to be a play-by-play guy. I hope to be a play-by-play guy for the network, a network. And, uh, and he said, well, we're, we're going to be pretty prominent. And at that time, even, we had 119 stations in 19 states uh, across the South and uh, on either side of Mississippi. And uh, that is indeed what happened. I, I turned down KNXT in Los Angeles. Uh, accepted the cowboy job, and two years later, I get a call from Chuck Howard, uh, who was the senior vice president of programming under Rune Arledge at ABC, and he said, "We're going to try you on college football." And uh, I was—I uh, he later described me as a, the, the proverbial uh, square, round round uh, peg in the square hole. He said, we can't figure out where to fit. So we're not going to renew your country. And, and uh, that was in 82. I'm jumping way ahead. Right. And, and that, but I, I got to do three boxing events internationally at ABC. I did some, uh, uh, some golf, about 10 over the course of eight years. Uh, I got to work with Jim McKay, uh, who is a legend, greatest storyteller I think our craft has ever had. Sure. And, uh, and I worked with, and his son, Sean McManus, is now my boss. Sure. Uh, but uh, it, I couldn't, I couldn't crack through to Rune Arledge or Chuck Howard. And, uh, and that and was a, at that point, ABC had Keith Jackson, yeah. Schenkel, Al Michaels, Vern Lundquist. I mean, it was a murderer's row. But sometimes it's tough to get at bats when you're in murders. Yeah. Well, I was number four, and 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 being number four in that lineup was not bad. No, it's pretty but, impressive. But I couldn't. They didn't see me in their long term plans. I don't think. Well, I know that because 
when it was when I didn't get selected for the 1976 Winter Olympics, okay. uh, I was not chosen in Innsbruck. I thought, oh, that's not a good sign because I'd been there for two and a half years by then. And then when 80 came around, I mean, in Lake Placid, uh, I'll fly coach, coach, if I can, get, if I can just do something. And uh, when 80 came, the night uh, of Al Michaels and Do You Believe in Miracles, I was substituting for Chris Schenkel on, with bowling in Peoria, Illinois. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So that's a tough one. Yeah, it was, it was bitter. Uh, and, and I, you know, there's so many unpleasant memories about those days. Uh, but I, I share one with you about, I, I did sidelines with Keith Jackson and with Eric Parsi on the Liberty Bowl in Memphis, Tennessee in 1979. We had Penn State Tulane in a driving rainstorm. And the redshirt quarterback for Penn State that year was Todd Blackledge. Oh, wow. And he didn't get in the game. Uh, Penn State won this Titanic struggle by a score of nine to six. <laughs> years and years and years later, LSU beat Alabama nine six. It was a much more memorable game because yeah. I got to do that one. But my point is this. The night before the game, uh, Keith was holding court in his suite in the Holiday Inn in Memphis, a suite meaning that he had a sitting room and a bedroom, uh, but not lavish. And, and there were several of us who were sitting around. Arrow was there. And someone asked Keith, uh, because this was 79 and the Olympics were coming up in 80. Sure. And I was still hoping I would get in February of 80. And someone said, are you going to do uh, uh, ice hockey at, uh, at Lake Placid? And I can't do a good Keith Jackson imitation, but I'll give you my best. He said, no, no, big young man. No, no, no. Old Keith is going to attach himself to this speed skater from West Allis, Wisconsin. His name is Eric Hyden, and he's going to skate five races, and he's going to win gold in all five. And old Keith is going to be there to describe it stroke by stroke. Let some younger guy do ice hockey. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah. That's a nice break. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Al took advantage of it. Yes. And he also, I mean, that was a great call. And then he came back two days later. That was on Friday night. Uh, they beat the Russians. Mike Ruzioni scored the winning goal. Uh, they had to come back and beat Finland on Sunday. And when that game, the, the U.S. kind of dominated that game as it was winding down. He, having already said, do you believe in miracles? Now Al was counting down. He said down 10 seconds to the gold medal, nine seconds, eight, seven. And he timed it superbly. Four seconds to the gold medal. Three, this impossible dream has come true. And then you got, I mean, we all remembered if we were alive and, and uh, were watching. And I mean, that's one of the seminal events in the history of sports television. I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, pretty good. Absolutely. So, so, um, 
so then, so then you you move on, uh, as you said, ABC, you know, kind of runs out. You you move over to CBS. Frank Cherkinian assigns you to golf, mm-hmm. and that obviously changes the arc of your career, also, right? Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Yeah, I was just I was just going to say that you know obviously that's a fortuitous uh, assignment because now all of a sudden you become you're now becoming a, a basketball and a football and a golf announcer. Um, tell us about that. Well, uh, gosh, it seems so long ago. It's almost 40 years now uh, yeah. that I've been with CBS, but I did not have an auspicious start with them. Rick Lasavita had been a producer at ABC and he left ABC to join CBS when they got college football back and he resigned ABC and I'd worked with Rick. We were very close friends, Harvard graduated graduate uh, and decided to have a misplaced education. (laughs) Uh, But, but he's a brilliant producer and, and uh, he moved over and we were friends and they got college foot. And I had been told now, and Rick knew this, uh, you know, one of these were moving in a different direction, which is a blow to anybody in any uh, working situation. Wow. Sure. And uh, I, and my dream was, was about to be halted. Right. And uh, anyway, Rick called and he said, we've got college football and I want you to, I know about the circumstance at ABC, come over here. I won't belabor you with all we could go for two days on this, but my initial contract with ABC was for eight, no, seven college football games and two basketball games. That was it. Wow. And uh, I said, I'm, I can't afford Nancy and I were, were about to get married. And I said, I can't afford um, doing this. Uh, and, because I was with an ABC affiliate. And uh, anyway, the grace of my boss, who had been my predecessor sports director, the late Dave Lane. Dave, uh, I came in and I said, I've got this. And I've been rich, totally honest with him about what my aspirations were. And I said, uh, this is the only avenue I've got to do what I really, really want to do. And he knew that was my goal. Sure. And uh, I said, is there any way in God's good green earth that you could see your way through to allowing me to work for CBS while continuing to earn a living at Channel 8 Television doing the 6 and 10? Because I've got to have a sustainable income. Yeah. Uh, and he said, let me think about it. And it's, it gets muddled in, but ultimately he, and we were, it, this goes back to the dominance that we had. And I had dominance uh, with my team at the local, uh, local television station also had become very prominent in Dallas because of the Cowboys, because yeah. they did go on to win three Super Bowls, uh, two during that time. Sure. Damn Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I blame Terry Bradshaw and all that. And Terry and I were partners and good friends. Oh, we're going to get any, that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, 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 but, but uh, Dave finally said, okay, here's the deal. 
you can do events for CBS, but they cannot be televised in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I said, well, that's, uh, this, uh, this was initially because I, I received an offer to do the 1982 first round NCAA basketball tournament. Okay. And Dave said that your, your games cannot be televised in Dallas-Fort Worth. But that was my first event ever for C- CBS. Okay. And uh, then the football season started. And uh, Dave, again, the strength of our local newscast, he said, okay, take it where, take it where it will lead you. And so then I, got, I did my eight football games. And things went well. Uh, and on December 1st of that year, 83, 82, rather, I got a call uh, from uh, Lady Susan Arani, who was director of uh, personnel at CBS Sports. She said, Frank Zirkinian likes your work, and he would like to try you on golf. Have you done golf before? And I said, yes, I did about 10 at ABC with Jim McKay and Byron Nelson and Dave Moore and Chris Schenkel. I mean, it was a big-time bunch. And uh, she said, I'm going to have Frank call you which he did gruff old son of a bitch (laughs) boy, the Ayatollah. Uh, We called him that partly out of respect, but mostly out of fear. Sure. Uh, He was a dandy, about five, five, uh, always with very nicely pleated uh, slacks, Gucci loafers. Yeah. I had to, had to wear Gucci loafers a cashmere sports coat and a Brillo type gray hair. I mean, it was just curly and then he'd growl at you. And, uh, uh, but he called me and he said, here's the deal. I'm going to offer you Pebble beach, AT&T then, or Bing Crosby then, uh, the Memorial Byron Nelson in Dallas, colonial and Fort Worth and Augusta. Well, I'm, I swallowed my, my, my breath when he said Augusta. And then he said, well, we're going to, I don't want you going into Pebble Beach because it's such a high profile tournament. Uh, I want you to be, be, to start out with us uh, at the Phoenix Open, which was opposite the Super Bowl. Okay. And uh, so very low key. Uh, and that, that was my first event for CBS. And uh, I can remember then Nancy, we had been married for about a year then. And uh, we, we, uh, we went from Phoenix to Pebble Beach and I worked the 15th hole at Pebble. And I was riding to the airport with Pat Summerall. And uh, Pat, I was driving and he was sitting in the passenger seat. We're going to Monterey Airport. And he said, uh, Frank likes your work. And I said, really? He said, matter of fact, I can't, again, I can't do Summerall. God help me, I can't do Madden. But, uh, uh, and he said, I know where you're gonna be assigned at Augusta. And I said, what? The 13th hole? Well, wow. So that was, that was my introduction to golf at CBS. Wow. And uh, I was, I was initially given a, per event contract. And, the, the, and so that was the initial, the, the 
football basketball combo now that that per event contract uh, compensation applied to golf and i was originally signed for those what six five or six and the six grew to be 17 in that first year and then ultimately uh i was able to sign a full-time contract to cbs but golf was the linchpin of everything uh, in terms of of uh, hanging around cbs sure and then and then you get to at cbs you'd get to do the olympics which you had not gotten to do at abc mm-hmm. and you get the olympics and you you do the olympics in 92 94 and 98 is that right. correct okay yeah, that's correct um and, and obviously, and this is tricky because we're going to go into, you know, your famous calls and all of that, but obviously you can't have a conversation without going into the whole Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan uh, uh, fiasco in Lillehammer, but it actually started behind, before that. You were in Detroit at the Nationals when Nancy Kerrigan was attacked. Tell me about that and, and you know, kind of your dealings with the United States figure sure. skating <clears throat> officials. Uh, not that I remember it vividly, but it was January 6th, <laughs> 94. And I was actually flying in, and the greatest credential in all of sports is observer. That means you don't do squat, but you have access to everything. Great and we were observing ABC's coverage of the U.S. National Championships in Detroit because we were uh, hosting the, uh, the uh, Olympics in, in Lillehammer. And, and uh, I had worked one in 92 with Scott Hamilton and Tracy Wilson, a brilliant person from a figure skater from Canada. And uh, I was actually on that day, I was flying in from, from uh, into De- Detroit and landed in a raging snowstorm and got into the rental car and was about six o'clock. So the, the incident had occurred that morning. And I've been flying all day. So uh, because we had moved from, to Steamboat Springs in the 80s from Dallas. And believe me, there are not many nonstops from Steamboat to Detroit. And so I landed and I got the rental car and I was driving to the Weston Hotel, which is our headquarters and the U.S. Figure Skating Association headquarters. And I was listening to WJR Radio all news, wonderful station. And uh, they were giving updates on the incident involving Tanya Harding. And uh, I mean, and Nancy Kerrigan, not Tanya at the time. Sure. And uh, I thought, good gosh. And I hadn't seen video yet. So when I got to, uh, checked into the hotel and uh, we were invited to a, a buffet dinner, cocktail party and buffet dinner hosted by the United States Figure Skating Association. And I was up there with, with Scott, Tracy, uh, David Winter, who was our producer for that event, uh, Bob Fishman, uh, who's going to retire at the end of the final fourth year. Bob does our number two football NFL telecast, and he's done the final four for 40 years, I think. Uh, Talked to him last week. Uh, but Bob, so we were all there and we were all, that was the dominant to- topic of uh, conversation. 
And I was chatting with the vice president of the Figure Skating Association. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he said, when we get to the bottom of this, this is that night. When we get to the bottom of this, and we will, I'll bet you we find Tanya Harding is involved. They had their suspicions right off the bat. Sure. And of course, ultimately, that is what they found. But that was the beginning of what ultimately became almost a cartoon show. Right. Uh, because that was six weeks before uh, the event in Lillehammer, Norway. Actually, we were in Hamar, about 30 miles south sure. of, uh, of Hammer. But they they kicked Tanya when they their suspicions were, they thought Jeff Galuli, her ex-husband, was the fomenter of the plot. And he had hired a thug named Shane Stant uh, to take a, an iron bar. And they, the hope was by, by breaking her leg, Nancy's, that that would open up a spot for Tanya, which she could have earned on her own. She was a terrific athlete. Sure. That's what just so bizarre about her thought process. And she claimed that, that uh, it was all Jeff's idea. Mm, I, I have my doubts about that. Right. But uh, they kicked her off the team. She sued. She was reinstated. Nancy, meanwhile, was working out on her own, and they required of Nancy uh, that she pass uh, a fitness test and a physical skating test to be allowed back onto the team, which she did, and she passed. Well, we went to Lillehammer about eight or, well, flew, in, flew into Oslo, Drove to Nor uh, Hamar again. We're 30 miles north, south of Lohan. but that was where speed skating and figure skating was going to take place. And checked into the hotel, and uh, uh, Kerrigan was already there. She and her now her husband and her coaches Evie and Mary Scottfold, who had been their coaches since she was a child, uh, they were already training in in Norway, and. In the meantime, this thing, I mean, the two women were on the covers of Time, Life, Newsweek. They led and, and uh, they were a dominant story on CBS. Not that CBS News was complicit in publicizing this thing, but <laughs> Connie Chung, who was co-anchoring the evening news with Dan Rather, flew out to Portland to report her half of the news from the ice rink where Tanya Harding was practicing, <laughs> then accompanied her from Portland to Chicago, to Amsterdam, to Oslo, and filming all the way. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then the morning that the two women were on the ice for the first time was in the practice arena. Where 200 feet. It was the the ice rink where the Storhammer or Storhammer Eagles hockey team uh, uh, played their games. And there was a, a they had built a chute from the Northern Lights Hall uh, archway covered, uh, and that's how you you practiced there. And then you came into the main ice rink. Sure. But that morning, we were credentialed again. So 
uh, Scott, Tracy, and I, and, and our production personnel were at the practice. We were down below, and the two women took the ice for the first time. There were 400 journalists, written journalists, up in a balcony, crushed uh, with their notepads out. And they, there were no television cameras because we were the only ones allowed in. Exclusive right. rights will do that for you. Right. And, uh, but I mean, some of the greatest sportscasters, sports writers, in America, we're up there, you know, not being able to move and say, let's, I wonder if she's going to hit her, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, and then that was the morning. And, and that afternoon, they moved in for their first practice in the actual ice figure skating arena. And I, I won't get all the names right now, but this is the amount of overkill that was being applied by my company. Uh, Evie and Mary, the two coaches were over in the stands and these 400 accredited written journalists, uh, writers were surrounding them. Tanya and Nancy and the other girls came out. I remember Lily Lee, he was an American, so Korean American, but skating for, for Korea because she had dual citizenship. Mm. Uh, and, and when they can now, so help me, around the arena, Correspondent, photographer, audio. So three-man teams. Susan Spencer, CBS. John Blackstone, CBS. Mark Phillips, CBS. Martha Teichner, CBS. Uh, I'm missing one more. Anyway, and then right below us, <clears throat> we were in a little perch above the ice, about 15 feet. You and Scott? Scott yeah. Okay, yeah. Scott? Tracy and I were, were watching all this right directly below us with lights and camera and makeup and hairstyles, Connie Chung. And I, 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 I love her. I, I don't know her all that well, but I certainly got to know her during those two weeks in Milan. Sure. <clears throat> and uh, she was co-anchoring the evening news with Dan Rather. If you look in a dictionary, that's the definition of overkill. Uh, I mean, it, it was just insane. insane. Now, they skate the first night on Wednesday night. I'm looking back. I've got a plaque. Uh, see the see the thing with the, all the little chunks? Yeah. Right next to that, there are two microphone flags. Yep, I see them. Framed. Uh, those are the two mic flags from Wednesday night and Saturday and and Friday night of the 94 Olympics. And, and our production supervisor, Bob Tiley, gave me those. He said, you might want to keep these the keepsakes of this event. So I've had, I've had, I haven't framed. <clears throat> but uh, the results came in. Uh, and Tanya was, I think, eighth. Uh, predictable. What, where Scott had said she would be. Sure. And uh, uh, and Nancy was right in the fight. She was first. And we had not yet really become aware of this little uh, Ukrainian sprite named Oksana Bayo. Sure. Uh, we were going to learn her talents very soon. I was, but she was second. I mean, she had talent. We knew of her, of course. Sure. But the next morning, uh, Neil Pilson, who was president of CBS Sports at the time, called Scott and me over. We were at the... Uh, at the ice rink, watching him practice. 
And he said, have you heard about the ratings last night? No. He said, well, we had a 48.5 share. Now this was uh, cable television had started, but dominance was still the prevalence of uh, the three major networks. We had a 48.5, and this figure has been revised down subsequently. But uh, the first estimated audience uh, figure was 126 million people. God, that's amazing. And Scott's reaction was, God, I'm glad I didn't know that when we were talking last night. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it's still, I believe this to be true. It's still the highest rated non-Super Bowl telecast in television sports history. That's and then we came back on Friday night and uh, uh, there was less drama, although Tanya supplied her own. Uh, that was the night that her bootlace broke. Right. Right. And, and if you go back and watch the footage of that, it is surreal. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's, and, and I'm not even counting this. We're going to go through kind of five of your calls and I'm not even counting it, but it's, it's fantastic. At one point you just said this bizarre real life movie continues. It's just like true. It, and it was, it was just bizarre. Scott Hamilton yeah. said things like this just don't happen. But of course it happened then, right? It had to. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and the reason we got those shots in the hallway, the day before the event, we had stationed, we were denied access and I, I got it. The, the International Olympic Committee said no, no cameras in that hallway because it was a very narrow hallway. The, the men's locker room on one side, the ladies on the other. So we had installed what we called a lipstick camera. Uh, controlled, it wasn't controlled. This is not, we couldn't move it up and down. Not in those days. Sure. So we had, it had to be stationary. But the, the morning of, of the event, one of our uh, technicians had walked down and noticed that the camera was on the door jam and was pointed straight down. So he got a ladder, reached up, Pointed it back, screwed it tight. That's why we had that camera. Uh, uh, when they're fixing her lace? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's amazing footage. I mean, there's like three women right. frantically trying to tie her skate, and she's kind of yelling at everybody. And I mean, it was just, it's like, it, you can't believe what you're watching. No. And we couldn't. Right. And, and we couldn't. And, and remember, Scott's call was, uh, I've never seen this happen before. And uh, she hollered as she was going to the ice. Uh, I'm not, I'm what, what did she say? I think she says the boot won't hold me. Yes. So yes, it won't hold me. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and Scott's comment was, um, I think she ought to be concentrating on her performance, but I guess you can't concentrate on the performance unless your equipment is, is ready. Something to, along that. And of course she tried, she, what the skaters refer to as popped her first attempt to jump. Uh, she just singled it and then she came over and skated and and i i used that video rich in in uh, presentations that i do uh, and so i've seen it hundreds of times and it's just every time i see it that the music keeps playing and she's got her leg propped up with her ice skate um, in front of the judges and they gave her a reskate because of equipment malfunction yeah. All of us went, really? It, I mean, <clears throat> the poor, the poor <clears throat> next. 
Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, you're on. <laughs> her name was Jose Chouinard. She was from Canada. And she okay. was given no. So it affected her. And then uh, Yuka Sato was the next one from Japan. And it affected her. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jose was the most affected by it. <clears throat> because she, you know, like any athlete, you have a certain time prepare mentally and then physically warm up and all that. And she was told, you got three minutes, get on the ice. Just amazing. She was not going to win the Olympics anyway. Jose was not, but she was Canadian champion, which right. is worthy of respect. And uh, she was widely admired in, in Canada. Uh, anyway. Just what a, just what a bizarre chapter. But yeah. before we get to some of the, some of the, the happier calls, let's call them. Um, uh, you're, you're, you're still at CBS. You're, you, you kind of pop over to, uh, to, to TNT, right? Yeah. yeah. And, but then I back went, to, the, went for the money. <laughs> we all do that every now and then. Um, and then, but then you're back to CBS, you're calling pro football games. You're working with, I think, Darren Deardorff mm -hmm. and everything seems to be going well. And, and you kind of have that third inflection point in your career. The first one was, you went to news, decided to go back to sports. The next one was you could have gone to LA, but you stayed in Dallas and, and kind of continued with the Cowboys and got national notice. And then the third one is you get tapped on the shoulder by Sean McManus, Jim McKay's son, president of CBS Sports. And he says, basically, what do you think about jumping in and doing college football, specifically the SEC? What was that? What was, what well, was your yeah. It, it obviously worked out, but it was a rough beginning sure. and rough in this sense. Uh, I was the number two guy behind, uh, uh, at that point, Summerall and, and John Madden. Uh, and I was working with Dan and, and I kept hearing rumors. Uh, I mean, life is good if you're the number two guy in the NFL, because you get a, a very important game. You get the second most important game. And on double headers, you get the lead game early, that sort of thing. Uh, you stay in really nice hotels. Uh, you fly first class. Uh, and now I hear rumors that I'm going to the SEC. And I was a football fan anyway. Uh, sure. And then I obviously knew about the SEC. They had not yet become as dominant as they subsequently did. Sure. But uh, I didn't want to do it. And I kept hearing rumors. Lance Barrow, who just retired, uh, a year ago as the executive producer of golf was then my producer with Dan on NFL telecast. And Lance came back from meetings at Augusta uh, to go over the technical plans for the, that year's uh, masters. And we were in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, getting ready to do a Patriot game. And Lance said, I keep hearing these rumors that uh, they might bring Dan D Dick Enberg over from NBC. And I said, no, I can't imagine that. He was doing and Notre I, Dame at the time, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. he was doing Notre Dame football. And right. Pat Hayden, who's one of my favorite people, one of my all-time favorite partners ever, was then with NBC. Okay. And he and Dick were doing Notre Dame football. And I saw Pat uh, at some event, and he said, just a heads up, he said, uh, I work with Dick every week, and he's not happy. Uh, it had to do with his assignments and how he was affected internally by a very prominent broadcaster. Well, Bob Costas. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, 
Bob was gaining in prominence and Dick was not not quite the prince that he had been. Sure. And and so based on those two uh, informational conversations, one with Lance, one with Pat, I called Sean and got his secretary and told, told asked her to have Sean call me. And he did within a half an hour, I think. And I was in the living room. I mean, the kitchen up here. And uh, I said, Sean, I keep hearing these rumors about about uh, Enberg, and I, I, that won't affect me, would it, in any, any sense? And he said, well, first of all, he said, I can't. And I, I get it, you know. He's an executive, and he's got to do what's best for his company. Sure. But he said, I can't imagine us uh, signing Dick. He's got 30 years at NBC. He's a big ticket item, and uh, on and on. And, and he said, I just don't envision it happening. But at the end of the conversation, he said, now, in the unlikely event, and, and Sean knows I tell this story, uh, so I'm not going out of, out of context here, out of bounds. And, and he said, in the unlikely event that we do acquire the talents of Dick Enberg, and you can't turn it down if you can do it. I said, I understand that. He said, how would you feel about going to the SEC and doing college football. And I said the appropriate things and hung up the phone and Nancy was in the kitchen pouring a cup of coffee and I turned around and said, honey, pack our bags for Tuscaloosa. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I had 17 years in the SEC yeah. and almost immediately, I recognized this was a different level of college football. Sure. And my first game ever was with Todd Blackledge and Jill Arrington was our sideline reporter. And we were doing Florida and Tennessee. And uh, I'd never been to Needham Stadium. I had done a game in Auburn. I'd never done one to Alabama, I don't think. But I, I had never been to Needham in Knoxville. And there are 107,000 people there. And the game was back and forth, though. And then Florida, uh, Jesse Palmer, uh, sure. television star now, and then does ESPN work? I guess he was the bachelor one year, right? I think, I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they never asked me to compete. I don't get that. Well, I wasn't. Time. It had nothing time. to do with looks. It was I was not a bad. Uh, that was it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so so uh, Jesse led Florida on a late game drive and with 10 seconds left he did or did not hit Jabbar Gaffney in the end zone with a go-ahead touchdown okay. and uh, Todd and I both felt like there was no possession gained but the back judge threw his hands up and Florida won anyway we got off the air and I looked at Todd and I, I was exhilarated and I said are they all like this <laughs> And he said, enough of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, they were. And uh, so, but that was my first, uh, the, the first impact that the SEC really made on me. And uh, 17 years and uh, I got to know so many wonderful people. <laughs> but I, I, I developed very, very close friendships. I really did.
not only with Todd and uh, and our, Craig Silver is the producer. He was then. Uh, he was he's been the producer of SEC football uh, since 1996, and I'd worked. We're dear dear friends. Sure. And initially we had Bob Fishman as our uh, our director. Now it's Craig and Steve Milton, who's a brilliant uh, director. And uh, I'm still close to all those guys, even though I last my last game was 2016. Yeah. And it was interesting. I, I saw a quote from Gary Danielson. He was talking about, you know, the rise of the SEC. And obviously it was you and Todd early on. And then, and then you and Gary, you know, for years after that. And he was saying that you coming in from the outside, you know, a, a Texas guy, an NFL guy, mm-hmm. a golf guy, it, it served to help the brand. I mean, obviously, you know, yours was a known voice, um, but you weren't, it, you weren't like a local, you, it wasn't a parochial, you know, right. kind of tribal thing. And, and oh, by the way, Todd Blackledge is from Northeast Ohio and went to Penn State. I mean, it, it wasn't like they had a bunch of local guys doing it. And that almost added to kind of the authenticity of this being national now. This was not a local thing anymore. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, and and I've got to, I, I, I just digress for a moment. Sure. Uh, to tell you a quick Todd Blackley story. And and we we I corresponded with him after the Army Navy game. Uh, we we were still in touch. We were doing a game in Tuscaloosa at Bryant Denny Stadium, and Todd and, and I mean Gary and I could we we are diametric opposites in terms of our personalities. I mean, he is like this, and I'm more the amiable, uh, you know. Let's let's go have a cup of coffee, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So, Gary. Yeah, I, did I say Todd? Yeah, no. you, I just want to make I'm sure sorry. you and Gary. And, yeah, it's Gary. Yep. And, and, this, and we worked together for 11 years, and uh, we got to know each other's idiosyncrasies quite, quite well. Sure. So the, some writer, I think for the Birmingham Herald, was in the booth in Tuscaloosa doing a profile on Gary. And Gary does have tunnel vision, and especially before the game. And he's... He's on the lower level of this two-tiered booth, way over to the right, and kind of and the writers over there with him, and and Gary had agreed to take the time to talk to the fellow. But he said, and I I was up on the second level, and the ads are coming in, the sports information directors are coming in, writers who are friends of mine just drop by to say hello before the game. Eli Gold, the Alabama announcer, who's that? dear treasured friend of mine. So I'm making nice. Yeah. And Gary said, look at this, will you? He said, I'm sitting over here trying to do my last minute game notes. And he's up there making whoopee with all these guys that are coming in. He said, I would no longer do that than I would stick an ice pick in my eye. <laughs> so, Rich, on my last dinner with the CBS crew, the night before the SEC championship in 2016, Gary gave me this. A nice pick. <laughs> a nice pick. What does it say on it? It says Vernon Gary, 2006 to 2016. Oh, that's fantastic. That is great. Oh, yeah, I can see it now. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Oh, to the listener, to the listener who doesn't have the uh, the video, he's got an actual ice pick, and it's yep. engraved Vernon Gary. That's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and and obviously your your voice and and early on Todd and then and then Gary became synonymous with that three thirty time slot, the big game in you know let's call it what it is the you know the best conference. Um, yep. It just it just was you know appointment viewing really. Uh, it continues to be, uh, yes. but you, know, you guys made it that um, in a way that I don't think we'd ever seen anything like that before. Uh, so I have to ask a couple of questions. Uh, a couple of questions about SEC personalities, and then I want to jump into some of your big calls. Sure. So obviously, you know, Nick Saban is the coach who, between LSU and then the many years at Alabama, tons of championships. What's your relationship like with him in terms of like the pregame meetings and things like that? Well, up in the hallway. And again, I'm a rat packer. Sure. And uh, uh, with with a career that's long, lasted this long, I've got a lot of packs to rat or rats to pack. Sure. Uh, but one of my treasured memory memories of the SEC uh, is up in the hallway. Uh, and it's a framed photograph that Nick had arranged uh, to be taken for the two of us. We were getting ready uh, to do our Friday afternoon session with Nick, which we do every home game at Tuscaloosa. And he stopped me in the press room <clears throat> and, and had a photographer set up. And he inscribed it. Uh, I don't mind sharing sharing this with you. Some would say, well, you got to be a journalist. Well, we're commentators. Uh, I don't see myself uh, as, as a hard, you know, a guy who's got to dig out the truth. I'm, that's not, as I, I, I admire those people, admire them greatly, but I'm half entertainment perfor performer on on, on the afternoon, you got to keep people tuned to the game. So you got to tell stories. Sure. Anyway, <clears throat> Nick stopped me, <clears throat> and I've got this framed photograph. And, and on it, he says to Vern, a great friend, uh, Nick Saban. And I treasure that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I I did. Uh, I I get I get a little uneasy when he jumps on the local reporters as he does all the time. Right. And I said to him once, I was in a call with Nick and Jeff Purinton, who works, he's, he's the athletic the athletic department Nick Saban guy. And Jeff, is a, he came from Florida State, and he's, but his role is to supervise Nick and make sure nobody badgers Nick. And, and I said, Nick, on this call, why don't you take it a little easier on those guys? And Jeff Puritan jumped in. He doesn't because they deserve it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess I'm not going to win that battle. Right. But uh, let me share with you, uh, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, years later, after I'd gotten to know Nick re really well, I mean, I, I did his games at LSU, too. Sure. Uh, and Jimbo and, you know, Will Muschamp, all of them. Uh, and, and, but years later, I, I, again, I keep thinking, my first ever television network football telecast was Ohio University at Kent State. And I've got the program. And after I started doing the SEC, I opened the program one day and I was looking at 1974, September 18th. And I'm looking at the staff Don James, who later earned great acclaim as the head coach of Washington. Sure. Was the kid state head coach. 
this graduate assistant was there named Nick Saban. And he was there because he was waiting for now his wife, 40 some years, uh, Terry, to graduate and get her degree. And he was, he was a GA, his original intention, uh, Rich was to go back to Fairmont, West Virginia and run his dad's gas station. Yeah. But he was a GA on that staff and we've had fun. I've done his radio show a couple of times and he does it live on Thursday nights in Tuscaloosa at uh, Bob Baumhauer's the former Alabama All-American has a couple of uh, sports bars, but we, we laughed and I said, you know, I remember sitting in that press box and you were in the coach's booth next to us. And I looked through and I thought, that guy's destined to become one of the great coaches in the history. And he said, yeah, I, I, I sat back and I looked over at you and I thought, he's going to have a long career doing college football. <laughs> oh, of course. But it, <laughs> makes for, enjoy, <laughs> it makes for a good two minutes with a crowd in front of you. <laughs> That's great. That's right. He was a defensive back there, played with Lambert, yeah. Jack Lambert. That's right. Yes, he did. Yeah, Kent State, the Golden Flashes. I um, can't believe you know that. <laughs> well, and the I, starting I, quarterback in 1974 was Greg Kokel. <laughs> that I don't remember. I got you on that <laughs> you one. You got me there. <laughs> you got me there. That's funny. Well, let's go. So, so obviously, you're you're associated with some of the you know most iconic calls in sports history. And I've kind of pulled out five that, you know, that sure. I can stand out. And, and what I think is most intriguing, and I, and I saw Sean McManus say, you know, uh, uh, the best announcers, if they're lucky and the, and the timing is just right, might be associated with a big call, right? Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Clearly iconic. Sean's father, Jim McKay, sadly at the Munich Olympics, they're all gone. You, you have many, I've identified five, but the craziest thing is when I started looking at them, I realized they're across, I think they're across four different sports, the five of them, maybe three, three sports across five of them, um, but across five different decades. That's the thing that really stood out to me. One is 79, one is 86, yeah. 92, 05, and 13. So you've got to have staying power. You have to be good enough to be in the arena and then you have to have the call, right? You have to, you have to, you know, kind of have the presence. So, with that setup and a lot of flattery, um, I will. I will <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't! Oh, stop! Stop! <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'll start. I'll, we'll just go in chronological order. And the first one, the first one's a little bit melancholy. In 1979, you're doing radio because, as has been discussed a few times, the Cowboys have a great run while you're uh, doing the play-by-play -play for them. And you're doing the, the radio broadcast of the Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Jackie Smith, who, for the listener out there who might not know, legendary Hall of Fame tight end, uh, but had played with the Cardinals, which was a franchise that just did not have much success, certainly in the postseason. <clears throat> um, and he, in his final year, he ends up in Dallas. And you have a call. I'll, I'll read the call because I'm not going to try to make you, you know, redo it. Um, but, but give the story behind it because it's, it's just such a great story. The, the call was, bless his heart, he's got to be the sickest man in America when in a, I believe it was a 21... 31-24. 30, okay, 31-24. Okay, right. A touchdown would tie it yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. In the third quarter, and Staubach hits him wide open in the end zone, and he's kind of slipping and drops the ball. And you say, bless his heart, he's got to be the sickest man in America. 
and there's a backstory to that. So maybe, maybe kind of give that color. Sure. Uh, that was the beginning of uh, local television stations ability to go live sure. from distant places. Uh, and we took advantage of it. We had our news crew from channel eight, uh, there our two uh, news anchors, weather guy stayed back in Dallas, but we were in Fort Lauderdale, uh, staying at the Pier 66 hotel prior to the game. And, uh, Jackie was my guest uh, on Wednesday night on our 10 o'clock sportscast. Uh, he and his wife, and we were doing the tele telecast from Tex Schramm's yacht. Now, it's a yacht he shared. Do you think times weren't different back then? It's a yacht he shared with Pete Rozelle and Frank Gifford. Wow. And they had this yacht as part of their acquisition of a marina in Key West. Okay. So yacht had, uh, Tex had his crew uh, bring the, the yacht forward from Key West and launched it adjacent to the, to the hotel in the intercoastal waterway. And that's where we did the telecast, the telecast that night. And Jackie and his wife were there. And, and during the interview and our 1025 newscast, I asked him, you had, this is your 13th year Hall of Fame career for sure. How would you like it? How would you most like it to end? And he said, and he pondered it, just not for long, but he said, I would hope that I could make a meaningful catch in the, in the Cowboys' victory. So when he dropped the ball, that's what flashed through my mind, is what he said. So it was, it was simply a human reaction to, in, in the context of knowing what his aspiration, what his dream was for that game, because that would have been a wonderfully uh, meaningful moment in the game. So, Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, in 1986, a little bit more upbeat. Yeah. On the 17th, you're calling the 17th hole at Augusta. Jack is 46 years old. He's six years removed from his last major. I don't think a lot of betting people had him winning the tournament going into the weekend. And he's making a terrific run on the back nine. And your call as he drains the putt is maybe, yes, sir. Tell me about the, the kind of setup for that putt. Well, uh, it, it this could go on for half an hour, but I don't think we're going to take that long. No, uh, no. But, but Jack began the day four strokes, four strokes back of Seppi Ballesteros. And uh, he began his charge with a birdie at the, at the ninth hole. He birdied 9, 10, and 11. I can, I can almost go through the whole thing. Uh, 9, 10, 11, he bogeyed 12. Uh, he birdied 13, parred 14, uh, almost eagled 15, almost had a hole in one at 16. Jim Nance's first Masters, by the way, at 16. And uh, in the meantime, Seve playing behind him, hit it in the water at 15, took a double bogey. So when Jack was on the tee at 17, he was tied for the lead at 46, as you said. Uh, with no wins in two years. And he pulled his tee shot to the left over near the seventh green, but he had a, a clear opening, a wedge from 125 yards, and he hit it, he hit it uh, 12 feet above the hole. I'm not that good at reading greens. That's why 
players have caddies and announcers are, unless they're professional golfers, which most of them are now, they don't want to hear from me about the, you know, I'll let the, I'll let Nick Faldo handle that part. Sure. Sure. Uh, but, but I could tell, I could sense it was a tricky, tricky little putt, slightly downhill. And as Jack was watching up, we're bouncing, walking up, we're bouncing around elsewhere. And, uh, and I thought to myself, holy cow, if he makes this, uh, he's going to have the lead at Augusta at 46 years of age. Yeah. And I, I, I gave myself a little talking to. Whatever you do, keep it simple and get the heck out of the way. And so when he stood over the putt, he had surveyed it, Jackie, his son. And uh, I just said, uh, this is for sole possession of the lead. And then shut up. And then when it went, and I, I did say maybe, but boy, did I hedge my bet. Maybe. Anyway, it was, it was three inches away from the hole. Maybe. <laughs> I, I said it had, I would have been a betting man. I would have bet on that putt going in. But then uh, when he, when it dropped, I did say with some degree of emphasis, yes, sir. And I know Jack quite well. Not, not, that's too, Broad. I'm not not quite well. I know him, and I've interacted with him since that '86. Well, before that, I've got a picture in my wife's office uh, of Jack, uh, me interviewing Jack at the Byron Nelson in 1976. So we go back a ways. Wow. Yeah. But uh, he doesn't care to be bothered about. It. He doesn't live in the past, and as recently as three years ago at Augusta. Uh, I was talking to him about, and I do believe this, synchronicity, uh, serendipity, call it whatever you want. As I was saying, yes, sir, he was reacting to the ball falling in by going, yes, sir. He was like an orchestra conductor. And that added to the, the emphasis, the emphatic point to that whole call. Yeah. And I, I brought it up to Jack and he said, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did, I did see a quote of his saying something, something along the lines of I'll, I'll forever be linked to that call. That's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, is- when I, when I did in 2016, uh, the university of Georgia did a wonderful thing for me. Uh, the university of Georgia uh, elected to show me the honor of doing a video tribute. So on the board, uh, the big jumbotron, uh, they had uh, Governor Nathan Deal, Jim Nance, Kirby Smart, uh, the head football coach, and Jack do a tribute. And Jack's comment was, you know, he made the call. I made the putt and he made the call. And we're going to be linked by that moment. Something to that effect. Sure. And then they directed my attention to the field, the PA announcer, and said, uh, Vern, will you look down in the field? And the red black band, the University of Georgia, 420 strong, had spelled out, yes, sir. And uh, I get tears thinking about it. I mean, and then he had the, on a count of three, he had the audience yell out in unison, yes, sir. That's so cool. Mm. That's awesome. So that's amazing. So 92, we switched to college basketball. Yep. Rick Pitino has built up 
the Kentucky team from, you know, probation and, and, you know, kind of disaster. He's got them in contention for a final four, three years into his tenure there. Krzyzewski's won his first title at Duke, but it's, um, he's, you know, he's looking to, you know, start to build something here. Um, the game goes into, uh, the, the game is an all-time classic to begin with. It's, it's in overtime and, you know, the shots are going back and forth. And then, yeah, and there, there's a little bit of a background to this story too. Grant Hill sets up the long pass to Christian Leitner. And your call is Leitner gets the ball, dribbles once, has the presence of mind to dribble once, turn around, hit the game-winning shots. There's the pass to Leitner, puts it up. Yes. You and Grant Hill are, are kind of have a, a connection, right? Yeah. Do we ever? Do we ever? Uh, and I didn't realize at the time that Calvin and Janet Hill, his mother and dad, uh, we're sitting right behind the Duke bench. Sure. But uh, Calvin, when he played for the Cowboys, first round draft pick in 69 out of Yale, uh, we became friends. And I met Janet. Janet was a graduate of Wellesley, and her sweet mate uh, at Wellesley was Hillary Rodden before she became a Clinton. Uh, and they're two wonderful people. And, and, uh, Calvin had told me that Janet was expecting what ultimately became their only child. And I said, give me a call and let me know uh, when Janet gives birth. I'd like to announce it on the 10 o'clock news in Dallas. So he called me the afternoon of October the 5th, 1972. And he said, Janet had a baby boy this morning, Grant Henry Hill. And so that was my lead, uh, not my lead, uh, on the Friday night telecast, but it, it I mentioned it uh, with not quite the emphasis I did have on yes, sir, but it was a congratulatory note to the two of them. And sure. that Sunday afternoon, Cowboys were hosting Pittsburgh and uh, they were down 13 to 10 late in the fourth quarter. And Calvin rolled out to his right halfback pass and found Ron Sillers in the end zone for a winning touchdown. They won the game 17-13. And all of that flashed through my mind after the play had been completed, not, not before. Not sure. I didn't sit there and think, gosh, I, might even, I wonder if he can make this pass. It'd be just like his dad. But in the, in the hubbub afterwards, they took a shot at Calvin and Janet, and I, I thought back. That I about that sequence of events in 1972. Here was a, a guy now six foot eight, 20 years later. And later that spring, Rich, we were doing a seminar in New York on basketball. And uh, we were in partnership with TNT. And so Grant was there before he became a regular on, on our CBS telecast. Grant and Steve Smith and Bill Raftery were, were the panelists. And, sure. and I was on with them. And I told that story. And Grant said to me later, he said, I never knew that. And then I sat him, saw him the next morning at coffee in the hotel. And he said, I talked to my mom last night. You really did that. I said, do you think I was lying to you? <laughs> no, of course I did. Uh, but that was the background of, of Grant. And they had tried that play. Uh, once before against Wake Forest and Grant, they'd practiced it and Grant had thrown it 
and it curved and went out of bounds off of Leitner's hands. And so in the huddle, and Christian told me later that they were all taught in, in that circumstance. They practiced this. If, if the opposing team, in this case, Sean Woods of Kentucky, makes sure. a bank shot, call time immediately. And they save fractions of seconds uh, with that quick timeout. And in the huddle, Krzyzewski, who can be stern, uh, looked at Grant and he says, can you make the damn pass this time? <laughs> And Grant said, yes, sir. And he did, of course. And then Christian had the, the wherewithal to take one step. And and Darren Feldhouse and, and John Pelfrey with two defenders for, for Kentucky. And Rick had said to them, don't foul. Don't put him on the line. Because he was perfect 10 for 10 at that sure. point. But he was also perfect uh, 9 for 9 before he made the shot from the field. So anyhow, it all came together. Sure did, man. Um, 2005, Tiger. At the I remember 16th. it well, as Marie Chevalier once sang. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and this is just, you know, to, to watch the footage is just unbelievable. But, you know, well, here it comes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. In your life, have you ever seen anything like that? Tell me about that one. And, and also give me a little bit of the color with Norm Patterson, the technical director. Okay. That's an interesting angle. Boy, you have done your homework. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Uh, I really am. Well, first of all, that was the call of a man who was 65 years old. Uh, it was not the call of a 35-year-old. And I think years of experience had, had taught me discipline. And had I been 30, 30 to 35, I'm somewhere way younger than I was at the time. I would have made the call differently. I would have yelled and screamed, sure. you know, uh, oh my God, it went in, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, but I think years tempered my, not my enthusiasm, but tempered the way I approach things. And so uh, I did the call in that manner as a guy who had been around for a while. Uh, and I did say in your life, have you ever, because I knew, I, that's how, how I felt. I'd never seen anything quite like that. And I think one of the keys to being uh, a successful sports broadcaster is react the way the fan is reacting. And I'll bet people, you know, were, were slapping high fives and saying, did you see that? I've never seen anything like that. And that's why I said what I did. And uh, I don't know Tiger well. Um, not, as, not nearly as well as I know Jack, but again, we're linked because of that call. Sure, and sure. Uh, there are worse things in one's resume to have your name associated with Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods when it comes to golf. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's not, that's not a blot on the, on the resume at all. No, uh, these were not two no names who made big shots. These yeah. Bad, right? <laughs> well, you know, and that's rich. I mean, no disrespect to Tom Kite, but Tom Kite could have tied Jack in, 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 uh, and Tom Kite won the open. Uh, and, and he's a very uh, accomplished golfer uh, in retirement now, but had it been Tom Kite or even more, had it been rich uh, Chris DeMarco, right. Who was his fellow competitor now playing partner. Uh, they right. can say that now, uh, 
they've loosened their stiff upper lips. And we, yeah. he's not a fellow, he's just a playing partner. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and I, I had Chris DeMarco won it and made that shot and then won it. We'd still talk about it. You remember DeMarco, but it wouldn't be replayed every year at Augusta. Right. It was Tiger Woods. Right. And it was Jack Nicholas. And I'm not unaware of the perfect uh, confluence oh, of stars yeah. and the timing and yeah. the big play and then the line delivered. Well, to, to the Norm Pattersons or Pattersons. Yeah. Uh, in television booth, truck, not in the booth, in the truck. Uh, it's a long 16-wheeler. We have two or three of them. We have a ton of them. But the main production truck has 54 screens up here. And the guys in the front of the truck, in this case, were Lance Barrow, the producer. He's far left. Steve Milton, the director, he's in the middle. He calls the shots. And Norm Patterson, the technical director, who sits to the right. Those are the only three. And there's a phalanx of people behind them helping assist, telling Steve where to go and letting Craig know what replays they have and so on. But when Steve sees the shot he wants, he calls a camera number. In this case, it would have been hypothetically Bob Wishney, who was standing three feet away from me, manning the camera at 16. He's the camera 10. And he says, ready 10, take 10. And that's Wishney's camera. And when, when Bob has the shot framed as Tiger off the green over here, Norm Patterson then punches a button and 10 comes into your living room. Right. And that's how the execution takes place. Well, now, Bob Wishney followed the ball perfectly up to and then made the break and heads down toward the and. When it got to the edge of the cup, Steve said appropriately, ready six, take six. Well, six is a flanker down below us and to the left, and he's got Tiger's reaction shot. He's framed like this. And Norm Patterson instinctively and intuitively did not take six. He put his career on the line because it's it's like a, a an officer under a ship's captain. If he makes command, you have to order and honor it and execute it. And Norm didn't. And because he did not take six, uh, we all remember uh, that shot going in. It, it would have altered everything about it. We'd have, you'd have seen it, but yeah. you'd have seen it in the replay. Amazing. And uh, that was Norm. Amazing. Amazing. Now, last one, 2013, I versus Auburn. Yeah, you remember that one too. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's 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 the Iron Bowl, it's the Titanic struggle, and with one second to go, and there's debate: did the Alabama runner get out of bounds or not? And the, there's a, all kinds of jockeying back and forth, and they decide that there's one second left. Nick Saban's going to kick a field goal. He's not happy with his kicker. So he sends out a red shirt freshman to kick a, I think it was like a 57 yard field goal. It was an absurdly yep. long field goal. And that sets up the play. And, and I, I won't even, I won't even go through it cause it's, it's a longer call. So, but basically yeah. Chris Davis is set up under the, the goalposts and collects the short kick and just starts running. And you're, you know, you're yelling return by Davis. Davis goes left. Davis picks, Davis picks up a block, gets another block. 
And, you know, as he gets down the field, no flags, touchdown, Auburn, an answered prayer. What was going through? I mean, that has to be one of the longest plays in football history. Right? Well, 57 yard field goal and then a 109 yard return. Um, what was, you know, kind of walk me through that play? Well, first of all, it took him seven minutes to make, decide to put one second back on the clock. Right. Seven minutes. And they were asking the truck, our production truck, to synchronize end zone camera, sideline camera, and sure. get them in sync. Matt Austin was the official. Uh, I texted Matt last week because he does, he's the rules official now for ACC, ESPN's ACC coverage, I think. Okay. Uh, but we're, anyway, he decides with the replay guy, one second back on the clock. Nick was irritated with his uh, senior place kicker who had missed three of four. And he put this redshirt freshman out. And during the time, during the debate, uh, Auburn's uh, special teams coach they had a different guy back under the goalpost and he made that switch. He put Chris Davis back there. Hmm. So the kick is short, pretty good kick. And now as it evolves, he comes left, gets a block, gets another block. Uh, Chris Davis. Now he's, he's unimpeded toward the end zone. And, and unless he trips and falls on his shoelaces, he's going to store. And the, the fascinating thing to me is, not fascinating, but when I said no flags, right? There's a little bit of a shiver that goes through. Dear God, don't let there be any flags. <laughs> and I looked back and I didn't see any. And when I said it, my my spotter said none. You know, he just gestured to me. You're you're safe. And then. Uh, Steve Milton, I mentioned his name a couple of times. Gary and I, we all should learn the art of the layout. Just shut up. And some people think that the world of sports will be enhanced by their excessive verbiage. No. Let the camera, let the director tell, direct the symphony. And Steve Milton did for a minute and 21 seconds. We didn't say a word. And then we finally did... Uh, and this is my favorite part of the whole sequence. Steve was, he was like a symphonic conductor. Tight shot, wide shot, end zone, end zone, mid-level, to ground shot. And some of those reaction shots are so memorable, the kids, you know. And and then we, I said, you might want to see this again. And we did, we only did three replays, I believe, but Gary had the best line. He said they had their, their field goal protection unit, Alabama did, on the field. And he said, as, as Chris Davis was going uh, into the end zone, well, no wonder they could, could not, couldn't, uh, something, I'm paraphrasing here, no wonder they couldn't get him. They didn't have any athletes out there. They had nothing but fat guys. <laughs> and I can't, kind of summed it up. <laughs> and did he was that did that make it onto the yeah um, oh, wow. yeah I missed yeah, that. yeah that's yeah. fun yeah, yeah. We, we were at a loud bar so we probably missed that part of the call that's yeah funny. uh you you said that ray scott is is uh one of your biggest influences if not the biggest um why and who else might be on that list also uh ray scott because of his uh, the art of brevity uh, okay. and for the younger people who are watching 
even some of the middle-aged people, you probably don't remember Ray Scott. Ray Scott, he became a friend as well as a mentor. And, and he did the Green Bay Packers for years and years and years. Uh, in the early days of the NFL's coverage on CBS, CBS uh, assigned broadcast teams to local franchises. So, so Ray was the Green Bay Packers. Uh, uh, Frank Gleber is another mentor of mine, did the Cowboys. Uh, Jack Buck did the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, like that around the NFL. Sure. And here's a typical Ray Scott touchdown call. Star, dollar, touchdown. They can see what he's doing. Right. And, and uh, uh, he, he taught me to be as, to, to practice the art of brevity and to, to not over, over shout or over talk a thing. So that's why uh, he meant so much to me. And, and I think that Pat Summerall, uh, Pat was the greatest counterpuncher I think we've ever had because he worked with John Madden. And Pat had an economy of words as well, sure. uh, but his brilliance and, and John Madden could make uh, a pinochle tournament exciting, I think. Uh, I mean, he just had a knack and that's why he was so revered because he had two guys, uh, Bob Stenner and Sandy Grossman in the truck. Bob was the producer, Sandy the director who could work with John and John was not an easy guy to work with, but John would, he would tackle the minutia of a game. And that's what, he could take a 49 to seven game and make you stay with it because you never knew what he would do. Pat had this wonderful ability to bring John back to the, to the present sure. and say, well, it's third and 10. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. But he did so with an economy of words and, and Pat, Pat had a master's degree in Russian history from the University of Arkansas. Wow. Yeah. I mean, very, very, very intelligent man. Yeah. And a man with wide, a wide degree of interest. And, but his knack, his genius in broadcasting, and he did this, think about it. Now, I've had a pretty varied career, but so did Pat. I mean, NFL, basketball, he did that for a while. Tennis. Sure. Uh, golf. Uh, yeah. And, and so those two guys and, and the other guy, Rich, that I would call a mentor was Frank Lieber. And okay. people don't remember Frank, sadly, because he died in the, in the midst of a really wonderful career. He dropped out of a heart attack while jogging in Dallas at the age of 51. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Frank taught me variety and, and I saw him do a sports spectacular race, a ski race from Sweden, RE Sweden. And I, I knew him well, and he told me he was going to go over there and do this. And I knew Frank, he's an athlete. He played basketball at Northwestern, but he couldn't ski. I mean, I, he, he'd never been on skis in his life. And, and I watched his telecast and he was just wonderfully effective. Uh, and I asked him after he got back, how in the world 
what did you do? He said, it's easy. Learn, and not easy, but here's what you do if you're assigned a sport with which you are not familiar. Learn the jargon of the sport. This is very important. How do they talk among the athletes, you know, or among people who compete, golf particularly? Sure. Uh, learn the jargon, learn the rules, and then watch videotapes and borrow liberally. <laughs> <laughs> and there's not a one of us, not everybody will fess up, but there's not a one of us who hadn't heard something. In there. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I, you know, I'll right. sprinkle that adjective in next time. Yeah. Figure out a way to incorporate that in. Yeah, that's exactly. Oh, that's great. Aside from Augusta, what what venue stands out to you? It doesn't have to be one, but aside from it, because I'm, I'm just going to assume Augusta is at the top or right there near yeah. it. Uh, what else would be up there for you? Well, Jim Nance loved Pebble Beach so much, he moved out there. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's and uh, I would, Pebble Beach is, and it's a public golf course. Right. Uh, if you can pony up the tab, and it's pretty severe, but yeah. you can play. Um, I played there once, oh gosh, it's been 25 years ago, with friends of mine from, from Steamboat. And Nancy, my wife, had just, taken up the game. And so the four of us played Pebble Beach and Nance did a lot of picking up uh, to, to not slow the group down. Sure. But uh, we were standing on the 18th tee having completed all but one hole. And Larry Bookman, who's an emergency room physician here in Steamboat, retired now. But he was leaning out, looking over Stillwater Cove. And then he looked back at the 18th and he turned around and looked back at 17th. And he said, I never dreamed in my life I'd feel it was worth it to pay $495 for a round of golf. But this one, this one lived up to it. So yeah. yeah. It's about as spectacular. I've never been to Augusta, but I have uh, been and that's about as spectacular as it gets. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, basketball arenas. Everybody should go to Allen Fieldhouse in, in Lawrence, Kansas, more so than Cameron Stadium at Duke, I sure. think. Mm -hmm. I just I I love that. Football, it's a toss-up for me in college football between the University of Georgia and the University of Alabama. Okay. Uh, I'd, I'd be comfortable going to either spot. Uh, figure skating arenas. <laughs> 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 Take your pick. Uh, college for NFL, uh, I wasn't lucky enough to, to broadcast NFL in some of these mega stadiums. I, I have done games in, 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 in Jerry World in sure. Arlington. Sure. Uh, Texas, Arkansas, we did several times there um, because it's the best broadcast booth uh, for football in the country. And I would, I haven't done the so I've been to SoFi Stadium or some of these new mammoth facilities, but Jerry did well with Jerry World. Yeah. Yeah, I took a tour of that stadium. I was taking my kids on a college tour and we, we took a tour of that stadium. And I just remember staring at that screen thinking, that is unbelievable. It <laughs> really just, is. Yeah, and, and until you've seen that person, it's and I notice now in the games that are played there, uh, the men in the play stops, all the players are looking up. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Vern, I just want to thank you so much for you know walking us through you know the arc of your career, but also you know all the wonderful stories from the Dallas years and the Dallas Cowboy years and your your time in the NFL, your time doing SEC football. 
uh, obviously all your iconic calls. It, it's been a real pleasure sitting down and chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, quite obviously, I think you can tell I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> That's great. I appreciate that. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.